0: It's autumn in 1965 in a small town in Carbon County in the anthracite coal fields. Annie drove along the river to the breaker. The fall colors had been very special this year, she thought, and they are most beautiful along the river. The colors and most of the leaves were gone now, and there would be a year of unforeseen events and unpredictable weather before the colors returned, as they always did in October. Is it as pretty anywhere else, in all those places where Nico had said they could move, where he could find a job above ground? She didn't know. They'd never been to San Francisco or Houston. She wasn't planning on going to any of those places either. Things were fine where they were. She likes her job, even though she had to put up with Bill. She just wished Nico could apply himself and get a good job out of the mines. When Annie pulled into the parking lot, Lily's Plymouth was there, right near the entrance to the wash shanty where everyone would gather and wait for news. She parked in one of the marked spaces and walked in. She'd been here a few times with her father when she was in grade school. He might have forgotten something and she would drive with him to pick it up. It's not a place where women were welcome. There were no women minors. When she got to a certain age... Her dad stopped asking her if she wanted to go back with him to the shanty. Lily was pouring herself a cup of coffee from one of the large commercial thermoses sitting in the middle of two folding tables placed along one of the shanty's long walls. The other thermos held hot water for tea. The tables were draped with white tablecloths, and covering the tablecloths were boxes of doughnuts and trays of sandwiches paper cups and paper plates, milk cartons and sugar packets, which the company had ordered and had delivered from the Krispy Kreme and the sandwich shop next to the office. Folding chairs were being arranged in rows facing the tables by a couple of office boys. Jack Walsh, the shift superintendent, was standing in the middle of the room watching the boys work. When Annie opened the door and walked in, she went directly to Lily. Lily put down her coffee, and they hugged each other. There was always a chance that this would happen, said Lily. Meanwhile, Jenny went into the ward office, told her assistant what was happening, and that she was now in charge. I don't know how long it will take to get them out, but when they do, they will probably be coming here. I'll let you know when I get back. She walked out to her car. It was warm for late November. The weather report for the coming holiday was good, right through the weekend, with mild temperatures and no rain. She'd been looking forward to Thanksgiving and having everyone at their house. She'd already done all the shopping and made most of the dishes and Vito's favorite pumpkin pies. She'd taken the turkey out of the freezer this morning so it could defrost slowly in the fridge. The turkeys are getting bigger, she thought. She would put it in the oven early Thursday morning after she had dressed it. Will it fit? Vito loved Thanksgiving, and turkey was one of his most favorite dishes, followed by pumpkin pie with whipped cream. God willing, she thought, he would celebrate Thanksgiving this year in his home with his family, after he and the men and the boys had been to the game. Words from the Coal Men, a novel by Michael Lawrence Senna, who spent his years growing up in Scranton, eventually settling in Sweden, where Brit Maria, his wife, and he have run a consulting company for over two decades, offering advice in the fields of navigation systems, digital map databases, and transportation strategies. He is the author of a number of technical studies, but also of Francesco, the story of his maternal grandparents. As we just learned there are different levels on which this novel, The Coal Men, unfolds. Most obviously, above ground and below ground, where the miners are trapped. And one of the most important threads that ties together above and below, and the individual stories that reflect the lives of the couples who are threatened by this terrible mining accident, that thread is the Thanksgiving holiday. We're about to hear... Michael Senna, as he describes his family life in Scranton and the larger significance of gathering for food and friendship. We'll get a real insight into some of the issues he explores in this tale of complex characters at a transformational moment in their lives as we hear his description of his own family life. Michael Senna's work often brings him to the States and his love of his family brings him back to Scranton during those trips. During his last visit to his hometown, Michael Sena stopped in for a conversation about the coal men and his love for family and this place.
1: Here I am just a few miles away from where my mother was born in Inkerman. It was, it was very cold. And uh, they're living in a, in a very old house that had been abandoned by the military. So this, this whole area had been, so 1916, I guess they were, they were beginning to think about whether they were going to get involved in World War I. And my, my grandfather had a lot of debt, so they, they had to move from Old Forge, the orchard, and they found this house here. And he was working the colliery. The entrance to the mine was someplace in Inkerman. And uh, they were living in this house. Of course, there was, no, there was no heat. The only thing they had was a stove, a coal stove. And my grandmother had wrapped her up as much as she could and, and put her in the bed. And she was down, I guess cooking in the kitchen where the stove was, and my one of them, my uncle and my aunt, came running down and said to Mary's Maria Maria, is all her, all of her blankets were off her, and she as my mother tells the story, she was blue, so my grandmother wrapped her up, brought her downstairs, and shoved her in the stove in the in the oven and she survived
0: that's what you're doing. you're helping us know what that was like. How were the stories told in your family
1: well my grandfather, my mother's mother's father, he almost never talked. So for all the words he didn't say, my grandmother made made up in spades, and so she was always telling stories. I mean, we couldn't we couldn't speak or understand Italian, but I know sitting around the table and the kitchen table was the place where everybody met. We never we never sat in the living room. My grandfather built this house: the living room, dining room, kitchen. And it was a large kitchen, large. Dining room, stairs going up, and then the living room. Were I don't know who whoever went there. I think one or two times we got to sit there for some reason. But we were always in the kitchen, and they had a they had a, a very large coal and wood burning stove, which had a couple of ovens, and that's where we were, and that's where my my mother was when when she was growing up. That was the same kitchen because when they when they finally came back in 1920, and then my grandfather started building this building this house and it was finished in the 1920s. So that's the house that she remembers. And she lived there until she was 27 when she got married. Everything happened in that, that kitchen. And that's where the stories were told. And she would tell us we'd sit in our kitchen when we lived down in, on 7th Street. And then when we moved up to Luzerne Street, we would sit in our kitchen and we would have very long lunches that would start maybe at 12, 31 o'clock on Sunday. And they would go until you know, five, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And this was almost every Sunday. And we would talk and, and then we would have... Her brother and sisters would come with the families, and we would continue to gather there. And the kids were always playing, but when we were when we were eating, and then after that, it was always time for stories. And you know, I got these stories. And when I decided that it was time for me to to start thinking about it, my mom was see she died when she was ninety eight. My father died when he was eighty eight she's 5 years younger. So during that 15 year period when I would come and visit her quite often even though I was living in, in uh, Sweden at the time. I had clients here and I would come over maybe once every at least once every 2 months. And we would sit for two or three days. My sister lived next door but she had a, you know she had other things to do. So we would sit and we would talk and that's when I got the idea to write the book and it turned out that it was the last book that my mother read. That was that was the other thing. I never saw my mother and father read ever. I mean, they never read anything other than the newspaper. And I never saw my mother really reading the newspaper except for the obituaries. My father read the newspaper. But his main, most interesting part of the newspaper for him, because he was an artist, was the funny papers. Yeah, he did, he did cartoons as well. But then when my father died, my mother, I remember I, I, I brought home a book that someone had given to me called Unto the Sons by Guy, Talese, Guy Gaetano Talese. And I found that book really fascinating. And it started to get me interested in the whole idea of of Italian history. I brought the book home. I brought it home to give it to Uncle Charlie. It's her older brother. It was one of these, you know, what am I, chicken liver? You know, why don't don't you give it to me? I said, what do you mean? Mom, I've never seen you read a book. She says, well, it's never too late to start. This was just after my father died, maybe a couple of months. And she she read the book. So I, I left the book with her. I started driving to Newark. I got to Newark, got to the airport, called her, and she said, you know, I started the book. I said, okay, how far did you get? She told me. I said, Mom, you're almost finished. She had written 200 pages in a couple of hours, probably an hour. And it turns out, at this point, she only had a sight in one eye because she had a problem with an eye, and she lost the sight in, in one of the eyes. So she's reading this book, and it turns out in the 15 years, well, not quite 15, maybe she, stopped. she had to stop in the last year or so, She just devoured books. She devoured everything you gave to her. And she read them. I mean, I checked with, I gave her, asked her a few questions about, you know, are you you really, are you just skimming, Mom? What are you you really doing? She knew the story. So the book that I wrote, Francesco, that was the last book that she read. That was great. It was really terrific.
0: And what did she think? Did she react to what you had put down?
1: Well, I know that she was really happy that I had put all of these stories down. Because not only did I include the stories, but I put in there, in recipes and there had to be a reason for for how we got the family got to where it was from where it had been what we did know was that, that they lived in the same house since 1620 and my my uncle never really he, he never hazarded a guess about how they got there but he knew the story that they had been there from 1620 they had the right to live in the house they had the right to farm as long as Rosati lived in the house
0: and this was in italy
1: this was in, in, in umbria very close to perugia in umbria So the family had lived there continuously from 1620 until 1978, when the last Rosati left, and then it reverted to the commune. So I had to make up something. How did they get the right to do that? And that became part of the story, all the way through the story.
0: We know so well that cultural stereotypes are easy ways of thinking we understand cultures and so on. But what about food and Italians? And I just read the most recent installment of what you sent to me, and it was the heartrending story of the polenta burning on the stove and don't tell dad that this happened. And you're talking to us about stories and lunches, long lunches leading into dinners. We think this about the Italian culture. Yeah,
1: and it's true. And it not only was true 50, 60 years ago or more, now 70 years when I was very young and growing up, the food was very much part of, of every day. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just Sundays, and it wasn't just weekends. It was every day there was something that was part of the food culture that we had. And you know, Sunday, we, we always had mostly homemade macaroni, my father's term. Uh, we never use the term pasta. Uh, but my mother made ravioli. She made capoletti. Um, she made also tortellini, but everything was everything was called raviolis. She always made the the meat sauce but it was never a bolognese it always had tomato but unlike my father's parents who came from Campania which is this, which is the same region as Naples so they were Avalanese. they came from a little village about 80 kilometers to the east of Naples directly to the east of Naples in the Ipernian mountains so lots of lots of earthquakes it was part of the main mountains their their sauce my father called it gravy was was like you had a pan, you put oil, you put onions in, a little, a little bit of tomato paste, some tomatoes, but there were there was no meat in it. So when you put this on, usually on spaghetti, because my grandmother may have made fettuccine, but I don't remember. It was mostly spaghetti. It was very light tomato sauce, whereas my my mother's side, it was a very heavy, filled with meat. I mean, the meat was in there. It wasn't It wasn't a bologna bolognese without without tomatoes. There was plenty of tomatoes in there. So the food culture was completely different. But my mother would make f- things for my father because he really liked the light tomato sauce with spaghetti. And she would make things that he also liked. So I grew up with these, these two cultures. And then we were just talking, my sister and I were talking about the, um, the zeppoli and the castagnata and the ciamboloni and all the things that, that were made At Christmas time or at Easter time, you know, special breads mostly and cookies that that were made, date-filled cookies. But the other thing that was really, I thought, was was terrific where we lived. We lived across the street from my father's parents, and he was a shoemaker. He had a shoemaker shop. And he bought the house where we lived from my father when he came back from the war, and they, they moved into this house. So we were across the street from him. His daughter was living next to next to them. This is on South Seventh Street in Scranton, so he was he was a he was a real estate magnate, you know, with putting all of his money in real estate. On our street, on South Seventh Street, we had we had people from not every religion. We'd, I don't think we had any Muslims. There there may have been a few Mormons hang, hanging around somewhere, but it was Protestants, Catholics, and, and Jews primarily. And the and the Catholics were Ukrainian polish, irish, german. There were now three Italian families because my my grandfather, my aunt and, and our family, but those just those three beer gardens at each end. And it, and it was it was we got to taste everybody's food, especially the Ukrainian specialties because my mother became very close friends with with one of the Ukrainians. She lived there with her mother and her husband who was Italian. And so we we had all of these different foods and cultures that we grew up with. And then my mother worked as a as a seamstress and where she, where she worked, there were again very different different cultures, but there were Jewish Jewish women working with her. She became very close friends with one of the Jewish women. So they were exchanging recipes. So our our kitchen was filled with all kinds of things. And now we think, "Oh, that wasn't that bread. Where was what part of Italy was that bread from?" Well, it turns out that that bread was from the Ukraine. <laughs> And then this bread was something that that she had gotten from her her Jewish friend. So, food was very much a part of the of our of our house.
0: Well, it's wonderful for us because we have talked to you about your family and your ties to Scranton and your love for Scranton, and you have put the stories down as you told us. But you have become a novelist in the meantime.
1: Um, I, I don't I don't really know how it started, but. My first attempt at, at writing something that... I, I wrote articles as part of my work in, in order to encourage people to hire me to do consulting work. So the articles would be about the business of things that I was doing and sort of educational. And one of the, the first major assignments that I got was a result of an article that I had, that I had written. It was working for the American Automobile Association and their MAP, their MAP group. And then I, I wrote an, a lot of articles that, that were aimed at business, business. And then it was 1990... I decided that I was going to write a newsletter and that I was going to send this out. So every quarter, I wrote a 16-page newsletter, had it printed, I mean, there was no internet, had it printed, and it was called Matrix Compilations. It was about mapped, cartographic, digital cartography. And I stuffed the envelopes and sent out about 100 of those to for, for the same reason. And now I was direct, direct marketing and writing about different things related to the to the mapping industry. And then I had another uh, had a client who asked me if I could do a newsletter for him, and this was on architectural facility management. And we did that for a while. Actually, that was that was before my matrix compilations. And then there was a long period when I was I was working started working for Volvo, and then I was working in the, in the automotive industry. And I wasn't I wasn't doing any articles because I decided that at that point I didn't need to do any 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 articles. And then um, it was 2013 when I decided that the newsletter was something that I was going to do, the dispatcher. But I started working on a set of essays. It's called uh, Essays on a Friendship. And this was mainly to record for my, for my friend. He introduced me to, f- to fly fishing. He introduced me to cross-country skiing. He was a terrific, and is still a terrific cook. He does all the, c- the cooking in his family. But I decided that I wanted to write down the, s- the stories of those, those nine years when we were bachelors together, we both became bachelors the same year, and we both married for the second time the same year, 1984. And in, in between, we had, we had bachelor years, which were, which were very, they were really good in, in, in many different ways. And I wanted to record stories. So it's, it's, a, it's a set of, series of chapters, and each one of, us, each one of them is an essay on a different aspect. You know, you know, one of them is on, on cars. You know, one of them is on cooking. There are their, their chapters, and that was the start of it. That was the first first thing that I put into book form, and I really and I and I had it printed. I had 10, ten of these copies printed and bound, and and I really I enjoyed the experience. And then that got me to the traffic book, beating traffic, and um, it was a, it was a self-publishing thing. But it turned out that they actually did manage to sell a number, and then once I did that book and realized what's involved in actually putting a book together, that's when I got the idea of doing Francesco.
0: In reading your novel, you didn't decide to set it in exciting Boston or internationally in Sweden. You told a story that is close to your roots, yes. what you know. Yeah. yeah, you're referring to the
1: Coleman. The Coleman is really the the first sort of non non-biographical story. I mean, I'm... I'm in there, but I'm not in there. I'm one of, I'm one of the characters that they're talking about. Those, those six men who were in the mines all had to go there. For one reason or another, they all ended up having to go there. And my grandfather made darn sure that his son was never going to go into the mines and that his grandchildren would never go into the mines either. The mines took care of us because by the time we were ready to, to, if we were going to go into the mines, the mines had already gone. So, but not my, not my uncle. Well, and you know, my cousins, a number of, of those, they were born earlier, older, older cousins. Some of them did, but eventually managed to, to go out of it. So I wanted to write a book about the lives of the people. And I said it in 1965, the year I graduated from high school, where I would then go off to college. And to to try to get into the to the lives of, of the, the men who were there, older, younger, and somewhere in between. Some born in the 30s but didn't go into the war. Some born in the, the 40s, post war, who did did go into the mines. And to write about their their feelings and and the the reasons that they were there, all different, but at the same time of connecting them to the families. Who were out there waiting for them to come out of the mine to to be rescued from from where they were, and to to go through their feelings? So I remember my mother talking. Part of the stories that that she had was worrying about my grandfather. Whenever they heard that there was a there was a mine mine problem, you know where where was it, who was involved? I remember my grandfather. He retired when I was maybe six, six or seven. So I was old enough to remember him coming home from the mines, completely black, completely covered in, in you know, coal dust, and then going into to the, the basement and where there was, there was a tub and a, and a tight kind of shower, you know, and coming up. I mean, he had, his complexion was like yours. He was very, very light-complected. He had blue eyes, and his hair, when he had hair on top, even the, this, this part he had around his ears, it was red. So he, he, was a, he was a typical Langobardi. and that, that area, there were lots of Langobardi, and the Langobardis are there from, from Sweden. But these men who went into, the, went into the mines, every day, you didn't know whether you were going to be able to come out. I mean, one thing or another would happen. And I wanted to get that into, put it into words that could relate to people who had never been in the mines to try to give them some understanding of what it was, why they were there. And there was another part of another reason, this kind of political reason. There has been both in Europe, principally in, in Germany and Poland, because that's where the coal mines are, but also in places here in the United States where, the, where there are coal regions. And there seemed to be a tremendous amount of negative, a negative attitude toward people who were coal miners, not people who were running the coal mines, that, that of course, but people who were miners. Without understanding what it was that put them there you know, and what it, what it meant to be there and what it meant to have, have work, to have a job, to be able to put food on the table, it's like, well, you know, we we'll just close the mines and everything will be fine. Well, it, it might be fine for you because you don't, you don't have to worry about putting food on the table, but it's not necessarily going to be fine for those people who are going to be out of a job and their families, well, they'll, they'll be retrained and the kids can go someplace else. And, you know, look, I lived in a place where the mines closed. I can see driving through, through Pittston and Plains and all of these places, Durier particularly, I can see what it looks like when the mines close and people don't have work. And they're not necessarily able to move. Where are they going to go? They're going to move to New York? You can't sell your house because nobody wants to move there. And if you could sell your house for whatever you would get, you'd never be able to buy something anywhere else except in a place like this. So you're stuck.
0: And there are many levels, not just technically below ground, above ground, but levels of age and the friendships and the intercultural relationships, too, because they're from different backgrounds. And yet you also treat racial questions from the 60s, too.
1: Yeah. Growing up in West Granton at that time, we had no black families at all. There There wasn't a single... Child in our grade schools, and then when we got to high school, we had we had not one single black student at, at West Scranton when I graduated in 1965. That's all changed. That changed rather quickly, but it was very different at Tech, Technical High School, Scranton Technical High School, and also at at uh, Central. In Central, there were the best basketball player they had. But he wasn't just a basketball player. He happened to, to be a very smart kid. Uh, I got to meet him. I got to talk. He was a year... Rhett Jenkins. He was a, I think he was a year older than I, or maybe two. So there, there, was, there was a representation in those schools, but not at all in my school. But then, mostly through sports, I got to, to meet people from other cultures, including particularly kids from the, from the black families. And then, of course, going to Princeton... Where even in my, my freshman year, there were not very many black students at Princeton. And I was lucky enough, when I went down there, I stayed with a, with a group of people. One of the people I stayed with was, was a two years ahead of me at uh, West Granton, and he went, went to, to Princeton. And one of his roommates was, would be playing the same position that I was going to be playing. So he took care of me for the weekend. And then when I decided to go there, he, was, he kind of helped me to get to get started.
0: When you were writing, you knew the kinds of things. You indicated that you wanted to bring this into the mix and so on, and this was a consideration you wanted to take on about why men had to be in the mines. Were you surprised with the conclusion? Did you know where you were headed, or did you have surprises along the way as you were writing, discovering?
1: Absolutely. I I I had the general outline. I had the idea, and that took a while. I mean, the basic idea is that there would be a narrator and the narrator would be unconscious. So that, that was important. And then I had, to, I had to decide who the characters were going to be. And then, so those were the first two, two decisions. The idea was that there would, there would be a mind subsidence. I wasn't sure when I started writing it whether they were all going to die or they were all going to live or something else would happen in between. Uh, I, I went down the road of, of eventually they would all die, and I didn't like that very much, because that wouldn't, that really wouldn't tie together with, with the other, the third part of it was that there were two stories that were running in parallel. And then that became the principal, the principal uh, method of writing the rest of the book, that these two stories had to run in parallel. And that basically there were two, two groups, one group of women who felt that their, their husbands were there because they wanted to be. And that even if they didn't feel like they had to be, that they wanted to be. Or that they didn't want to exert themselves further and try to find a job that wasn't in the mines. Because the mines paid well enough. And it was a job that, that if you could do it, you could do it well. You could, get, you could get paid and you could feel like you were accomplishing something. So there were the wives. And, and they had their own lives. They had their own. One of them was working as, as a secretary or administrative person in the mine company. He was in the mine, and she was in the she was in the office. You know, and and uh, teachers and and so on. Nurse. That that's one. Then there was the other group who weren't married. So there was there was the orphan, the Polish orphan, the Jewish Catholic Polish orphan, and his girlfriend who was very vocal about not wanting him to continue working in the mines and getting out of there as quickly as possible and she was also the one who was most critical and so she she gets into a conflict with with the wives who's saying well it's a job you know he's doing this no look why would we ever allow that why aren't we down there why is it only men well well we we're the older one of the older ones well you know we're in the we're in the dress factory and that's not that's not easy you know we're breathing all that stuff that's hard work my mother was a seamstress so I'm talking now my mother's voices coming through here. This is this isn't easy. She went into the dress factory in Old Forge when she was 13 years old and she came out of the dress factory when she was 60 65. So, yes, of course. But she was a librarian. The young girl was a librarian and the other one was a was a chemist, you know, who's who was matched up with Jonesy. And then the the black woman in the navy in the navy in a, in a uniform matched up with with uh, Tony. So this meeting that, that occurs with Tony and, and April. It was through a friend, and they met, and both of them were in a situation where they just wanted to talk to someone who would listen to them, someone who could not sympathize, but, but could truly listen. And it turned out, you know, over pie at a diner, which they did quite a bit of, <laughs> they were able to talk to each other. And then Tony's got to decide, well, what do I do now? You know, do I tell my brother, or do I tell, I'd like to introduce her, but And it was the same with her parents because it was the same situation with them you know you do this and then you're going to be in you're going to be in trouble so just getting that into this this mix so i wanted to tell that story in parallel and and to 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 get both of these things working at the same time and one of the revelations is that rossi's wife never knew that her husband wanted to be a dance teacher and the kids her kids, come in. say, didn't you know that? You know, and and that 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 sort of puts the, I think puts the, the, the whole thing in perspective. That that they've they've got these lives, and and Joey's wife doesn't really understand that her husband wants to be a, a forest ranger. I mean, he doesn't want to work in the mines. He wants to be a forest ranger. I want to be out, you know, out here. And she doesn't like camping, and she doesn't like all this stuff. And so, like, it's it it's almost as if. And they're the ones who got married very young. He he had a scholarship to play football, and he decided he didn't want to do that. He came back. They got married, and they had kids. And then so he ends up in the in the mines. These are stories. These are these are things that happen to people. You know that there, there's a reason why all of these things happen, and sometimes they're good reasons. But it's it's not always that people just kind of fall into it and say, "Oh, I'm going to be a coal miner," and you know, I'll I'll try that out for a while. There are, there are conscious and subconscious reasons why, why people do things. But I, I felt that it was important to put, put those into, into a parallel perspective. Now they're going to get back together again. And Joey's going to go out and be a, be a force ranger. And Nico, you don't know whether Nico is paralyzed or not. You don't know whether he's going to be able to walk again. But he's alive. And he's going to, to take over Sparky's uh, electric shop. And he's going to be a, in, in the business of fixing things, you know, fixing things electric. And Jones, he's going go to go to Lehigh and he's going he's to become a, a nuclear engineer, you know. I just, by the way, I, on the way up here, I passed the nuclear plant that was in the process of being built in that story.
0: It seems to me that these are not stories peculiar to northeastern Pennsylvania and anthracite coal at all.
1: Not at all. You can go to Poland. You can go to to Germany. Go to England, Wales. Wales is a very good example. And the reason the the Welsh the Welsh came and they they became the miners. They they really did start the mines. I went to pontyprith in in Wales. There's a university there, and I went to visit it there. Drove through Bath, and I came into Wales and I started driving north up to, to Pontypris, where the, where the university is, I thought I was in Scranton. It was West, West Mountain, East Mountain. There's the river in between, it looked, it looked just like. And then I began seeing the collieries. It was as if I was in, in Scranton. Yeah, so all of these places. Where, wherever there are places where people have to go into the mines, and it doesn't even have to be coal mines. I mean, it's, it's any kind of mining. And then it, not even mining. I mean, it's, it's um, working in the steel mills. Talk about, talk about dangerous jobs in Pittsburgh or Bethlehem, um, and then they leave, then they're gone, and then you have a place that, that has no business and no reason for living, no reason for people being there. What happens
0: to that community? Michael Lawrence Sema, internationally known expert in telematics, digital map databases, location-based services and navigation, and a native of Scranton, who now lives and works in Sweden, speaking about his family life in Scranton and his novel The Coal Men. You can read The Coal Men online at michaelsenna.com, and Senna is S-E-N-A, michaelsenna.com, and you can find many other books and articles and interesting things like the favorite libraries of Michael Lawrence Senna. He was a student of architecture for a while, and he loves books and particularly appreciates the architecture of libraries and includes a listing of his favorites, including the Albright Memorial Library in Scranton. For more information, michaelsenna.com, michaelsenna.com. The novel is The Coal Men, and you can read it at michaelsenna.com.